Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm your host, Mary Ann Wolfe. Joining us to discuss the color of education are speakers and organizers of the event, including Dr. William, known as Sandy, Darity, professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Dr. Darity, thank you for joining us. Much of your research in your recent book with Kirsten Mullen, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, has focused on racial inequity, including the racial wealth gap. We often talk about economic inequity in relation to disparities in income. Can you discuss why it's important to focus on wealth? Wealth, the difference between what you own and what you owe, or the net value of your property, actually provides a form of insurance against income loss in the event that a breadwinner in a family loses their job, or there's a catastrophic illness that besets a family, uh, the presence of uh, a stock of wealth uh, provides a certain degree of uh, security for those families that they wouldn't otherwise possess. Uh, and wealth also provides you with an array of opportunities, including better prospects for entering into self-employment or emerging from, uh, from college or university without any student debt. Uh, and uh, in addition, the, the possibility of parents and grandparents providing resources for subsequent generations through bequests as well as gifts. So, uh, so wealth is very, very important and it's, it's dramatically different in terms of the amounts that are possessed by different groups in our society. Would you share a little bit more about what the racial wealth gap looks like in the U.S. today? So today, uh, Black Americans in particular constitute about 13% of the nation's population, but only possess about 2.5% of the nation's wealth. At the household level, this translates into a circumstance where the net worth of the average Black household is $800,000 less than the net worth of the average white household. So the sources of the racial wealth gap uh, actually originate uh, historically uh, with respect to the conditions that emerged in the aftermath of the Civil War, where uh, the formerly enslaved were promised 40-acre land grants in restitution, but never received them. Uh, on the other hand, simultaneously, the federal government under uh, the aegis of the Homestead Act of 1862 began a process of providing 160 acre land grants to over 1.5 million white families in the western part of the United States as part of the National Colonial Settlement Project. And uh, as a consequence, uh, there was a significant allocation of, uh, of free equity to uh, white families at the same point at which uh, black families emerging from slavery were denied any resources whatsoever. Uh, so that's the beginning of the racial wealth gap in the United States. And it extends into circumstances where uh, there's a series of white massacres that take place between the course of the end of the Civil War into the 1940s where uh, black communities that had acquired some measure of prosperity and some measure of wealth uh, were frequently 
absolutely or literally destroyed. Uh, our own example in North Carolina is the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. Uh, so simultaneously with the destruction of black property and the loss of black lives, in many instances, black property was ultimately appropriated by the white mobsters. Uh, one of the most glaring examples is Ocoee, Florida. Uh, but uh, into the 20th century, we observe a transition from an emphasis on wealth uh, that's focused on land to an emphasis on home ownership, per se. And there was a series of federal policies that operate, operated in a discriminatory fashion, benefiting white home ownership and disadvantaging black home ownership. And among these, I would highlight the presence of redlining practices that were conducted by the private banking sector uh, in conjunction or in collaboration with the federal government, but also the discriminatory application of the GI Bill in the aftermath of World War II, where um, returning black veterans were denied the same kind of opportunities to engage in home buying that were provided to returning white veterans uh, due to the decentralized application of the program and the fact that local authorities were biased towards providing resources exclusively to the white veterans. Well, this history is so helpful um, to understand um, as we look forward. And I'm really curious to hear more from you about how do racial wealth disparities relate to educational inequities that we see in our schools today? So this is a bit tricky, uh, and, and I'm not sure that there's a full relationship in either direction. Uh, so let me, let me point out that with respect to wealth, uh, black heads of household with a college degree have two thirds of the net worth of white heads of household who never finished high school. So there's a sharp difference in the return or the payoff in terms of wealth position that's associated with, uh, with, with educational attainment. Uh, in, in fact, I, I would say that we're more likely to be able to explain the level of educational attainment based upon the wealth position of a young person's family than we are to explain uh, their, uh, their wealth position on the basis of their educational attainment. So let, let's flip the causation and let's focus on how parental and grandparental of wealth provides certain advantages for uh, young people to, to be highly successful in the, uh, in the academic setting. But because of the way in which uh, discriminatory practices operate in the educational setting itself, it's not clear that eliminating racial wealth differences would eliminate racial differences in, 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 in inequities in the schooling process. Uh, would, it's not clear that uh, eliminating racial wealth differences would eliminate uh, racial inequities in the schooling process. Um, so for example, in North Carolina alone, uh, we have very, very dramatic differences in, for, uh, in the identification of black and white students as gifted. And we have significant racial differences in the uh, entry of black and white students into advanced placement courses. And there's a connection. We now know that uh, gifted ident identification does correlate with participation in more challenging curriculum uh, 
later. And so uh, when we don't have kids identified as gifted at the same rates in the elementary school years, that will translate into sharp differences in participation in classes like advanced placement uh, courses uh, later on. What is your advice to the general public and to education stakeholders on what they should be thinking about, but also what action they should be taking now? I think one of the critical issues at play is the phenomenon of what uh, the sociologist Christopher Tilley called opportunity hoarding. And more recently, uh, Richard Reeves at the Brookings Institution has called dream hoarding, which is the uh, possessive appropriation of opportunities for being successful academically on the part of families that already have an advantaged position. So I think there has to be some, uh, some element of relinquishing uh, unfair advantage in the process of, 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 our, of our schooling, uh, our school system uh, that would require uh, equalization of access to the most advanced and challenging curricula across all students uh, to move in the direction of eliminating patterns of racialized tracking or economically based tracking in our schools and give all students the most challenging and, uh, and inventive curricula that we can, we can provide them with. Well, Sandy, I just wanna thank you so much for being with us. I learn so much from you and I know that our audience will be so pleased to learn with you. And I know we'll wanna continue this conversation as well. So thank you so much. Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Town Bank, serving others, enriching lives. We are so pleased today to be joined by Bettina Umstead, who is the chair of the Board of Education of Durham Public Schools, and Shannon Bowman, who is the University Connections Liaison and teacher at Centennial Campus Magnet Middle School in Wake County Public School System. Bettina and Shannon, welcome. Thank you. We just had a chance to hear from Dr. Darity about the racial wealth gap and educational inequities that are evident in our communities and our schools. As we continue on this Color of Education Month, I'm eager to hear more from each of you about the role that equity plays in our school today, especially with COVID-19. Bettina, would you like to share a little first? Yes, thank you so much um, for having me today. I'm excited to represent Durham Public Schools. Equity is one of our core beliefs. It's written into our governing principles and we have an Office of Equity Affairs that really helps us make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable for that equity work. To us, equity means that no matter um, the race, gender, social economic status, sexual orientation, disability, that we, the outcomes will be the same for those students. And we work to do that, whether it's in policy, in practice, in curriculum, to operations, really make sure that's across the board. Thank you so much. And Shannon, I know in your school, this also plays a big role. Would you share a little bit with us? Sure. So being at Centennial Campus Magnet Middle School right in downtown Raleigh, um, we are afforded to have an amazing uh, collection of students from all around the county because we are a magnet. We source students from outside of Raleigh, but we also have our base students. So we are lucky to have this amazing hodgepodge of different um, students walk through our building where that makes us, you know, fortunate enough to be able to talk with them and learn about them. And I think with equity in our building, I think that is our great plus to being here at Centennial is that we really are very mindful of that. And we take great pride in the fact that we are given that opportunity. 
when we're face to face, our building starts with everyone in the hallway saying hi, reading people's faces, reading their body language, checking in with students. Um, and that's everybody, everybody even including our office staff. So our entire school is all hands on deck right there, making sure that our students are being seen and heard and loved and make sure that we're um, meeting them where they are coming in. And now that we are virtual, I can say that we are doing the same thing. I, I know that we are reaching out to families, we are doing home visits, we are making sure that we're communicating amongst teachers that we're talking about specific students and by name and making sure that we are hearing their story even though we can't see them face to face. Thank you so much. And Bettina, I'd love for you to dig a little bit more into on this really significant focus on equity. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what this looks like in Durham School and what this means, especially with COVID-19. Yeah, COVID-19 uh, shine the light on any inequities that we had already seen in our district. So we really have taken the time to think about, okay, where those inequities are and how are we designing programming to meet those needs? So we've touched base with every student in our district. We are providing meals to families in our district. Um, we have been taking the bus out to those apartment communities where most of our students are. And then we've been really looking at, as a board, we've decided to start working on an equity policy. And that is really, um, in this COVID time, I feel like it's helped us create real narratives. They're gonna help create that policy and know that we're coming from our students' experiences. Um, one other thing we also did with COVID times is we knew that we might be in virtual learning. So we purchased Chromebook devices for every single one of our students. And we also provided internet hotspots for many of our students as well who needed those because we knew that that connectivity was gonna be a huge um, challenge if we didn't have those things ready so our students could learn. Thank you. And I do want to just take a moment to appreciate the many pushes and pulls and the immense responsibilities that you both have in your schools and your districts do, along with your teams. And, you know, in order to ensure that all students have access to effective learning opportunities. And Shannon, I know your school focuses heavily on understanding all learners and social and emotional learning. And I wondered if you could share some specific examples of how you're able to continue the important work. Um, that you have been had started many years ago, quite frankly, and now in this time. You're um, correct. I think that um, reaching out to our students and understanding them from the whole child perspective is probably the backbone of who Centennial is. And I would say that one of our most um, mindful and practices that we do still even virtually is that we have an advisory period every day of the week. And we take that time to focus on our magnet theme of leadership and university connections to make sure we're still giving students those meaningful skills, even though they're not here in the building, but still cultivating their strengths and finding ways of helping them grow. We talk about leadership on Monday. We still do restorative um, practice community circles on Wednesday, even though we're virtual. And then on Fridays, we take that time to reflect and allow students to reach out to their teachers and make times to, you know, I wasn't able to get log on because my internet wasn't working on Tuesday. So let me have some time to work on that now. So we're really trying to make sure that students are being seen and given that grace, but they're also finding ways to still grow even though we are virtual. Um, I think that, we do a really great job here at Centennial of getting to know our students and we use that advisory time to say, hey, I noticed so-and-so seemed down during advisory, reaching out to their teachers. It's just a time where we pause and we take the academics off the table and everyone's on the same playing field and we say, okay, how are you? 
What are you doing? What do you need? And I think that time to really talk with them one-on-one -on -one really opens up the lines of communication so that when they are having academic issues or concerns, they feel more free to come to us. And I think Centennial does a great job of doing that across the board. It does feel like we're in a different moment, um, that we might have some opportunity in front of us right now to go further with this work. And I wonder what advice you both have for school and district administrators, for school boards, for educators, but also for our communities um, and how we move forward. Um, Bettina? Yeah, um, I believe this last six months between COVID-19 and then also the many um, instances of racial injustice that's happened in our communities has really created space for us to have real conversations with each other. Um, our Office of Equity Affairs facilitated some conversations called We Are Not Okay. And it really allowed educators and families and teachers to talk about their experiences, what they're feeling, and then also reimagine what it means to move forward. So I really um, ask folks to lean in to the learning, whether it's getting a book, going to a racial equity class, but also have conversations with your peers, have conversations with your neighbors, understand where they're coming from, and also really centering equity. And as we think about moving forward, how do I make sure that everyone, no matter their status, no matter their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, all those things um, can have the same outcomes. And I think that's at the root of what equity is. Have those crucial conversations. Don't be scared of it. And I think that right now we're given this amazing platform to meet our students where they are and don't hide behind the fact that because you're a teacher you can't have those real conversations because if your children are living through it then you need to be having a conversation about it and i think that sometimes teachers feel very weary of having those real conversations but i think that right now we live in this amazing um, time where it's on the table and we can't be blind to it and we need to really confront it face to face and let the students know that we see them, we hear them, and we don't only care about their academics, but we care about how they are behind their doors and what conversations are happening around their dinner tables. I would just love to ask both of you, what gives you hope in all of this going on right now? To know that our young people um, are excited about this topic of equity, are dreaming and imagining of a world that they can see and they are fighting for. Our students are organizing protests. Our students are coming to speak before the board. And so I think the students and the young people give me hope that equity will be at the forefront um, starting today. It has been in the past, but it will be for a long time. If you t get any moment to sit down and talk to a student, no matter their age, it can be kindergarten up to you know 12th grade, the things that they think and the way that they see the world is such a breath of fresh air and the fact that they are not limited to by social norms yet, you know, they've, they're just still like so wide-eyed and ready to take on the world. I do a project in my eighth grade class called Be the Change. And in that class, they come up with one real world problem that they wish they could change. And if they could take one thing off the table, what would it be and why? And to hear the things, the concepts that they come up with and the things, you know, one student brought up the racial injustice in education. Um, and that is something that I don't know that any teachers had that conversation with that child, but they are watching and seeing and they're learning from us without us actually having those conversations. And I think that they are the thing that's going to give us hope, get us through these times and remind us of why we're all here and to keep us pushing forward. Well, thank you both so much. It has truly been a pleasure to have you with us today. And after the break, the final word. I have had many conversations this past week and also over many years about what it will really take to address the opportunity gap and to achieve equity for all of our students. 
I have also watched so many district and school leaders and communities wrestle with the same question. What we know is that all too often we come up short or we make a lot of efforts that do not lead to immediate or long-term changes in our schools. As we continue our month-long focus on educational equity, this week our guests on Ed Matters remind us both of the history and present-day context that we must acknowledge and embrace when thinking about solutions that result in true equity. They also remind us of the efforts that are currently in motion that are making a difference for some students. Today on our show, we heard from Dr. Sandy Darity, whose research focuses on inequality by race, class, and ethnicity, as well as the racial wealth gap, which in the United States continues to widen. Between 1983 and 2013, white households saw their wealth increase by 14%, while black household wealth declined 75%, and the median Hispanic household wealth declined 50%. Dr. Darity's research exposes just how systematic inequality persists in the form of housing discrimination, unequal education, police brutality, mass incarceration, employment discrimination, and massive wealth and opportunity gaps all barriers to eliminating the student achievement gap that we must collectively address before we can hope for equity in our schools. We also heard from Shannon Bowman, a middle school educator in Wake County who has supported teachers to leverage their advisory periods and leadership focus to empower students with skills to grow in their social and emotional learning and address their learning differences. With her guidance, students are learning to develop their own voices and understand what they need to succeed. Bettina Umstead, chair of the Durham Public Schools, shared the specific steps educators, administrators, and the community are taking in Durham to address equity in meaningful and sustainable ways. Our month-long Color of Education Summit is providing us with the time and space to hear and face data and facts that are not necessarily widely known or internalized as a critical part of our work. Wealth and health disparities that we are learning about must be a part of how we address equity in our schools because they affect our families and students every day. I am reminded by the importance of our efforts, but also of the complexity with which we will need to address equity. While not comprehensive, we must consider the following. How do we address systemic racism in our schools and our communities? Developing racial literacy and a deep understanding of past and present structural racism and how it impacts educational equity and opportunity must be a part of our framework for all of us in the field of education and we must take steps to redress inequities in and outside of schools. How do we create a culture that supports the whole child, which is the academic, social, and emotional learning for each and every student? We must also learn and be committed to understanding adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, and the trauma-informed practices that support a school's culture and interactions. How do we develop instructional approaches and learning opportunities that are strengths-based and culturally responsive and that allows students to show what they know in different ways. Instruction must empower and inspire students and maintain high expectations for every child. How do we change the systems that create and maintain barriers to equity? We must revamp school finance systems that result in equity, equitable resources across schools and districts. We must ensure that all students have access to challenging, engaging curricula. We must revise accountability models that penalize schools and students with fewer resources and opportunity, and instead provide them with adequate and equitable support. We must provide opportunities for students to focus on their interests, to engage in meaningful project-based learning experiences that will help them grow the range of skills they need. 
This October, the Public School Forum's Color of Education Summit and our speakers on today's show have impressed upon me that addressing equity in education is both complex and urgent. We must also remember that this cannot be done by the schools alone, that much of what needs to change must also be done by communities who are willing to confront the systemic racism that can be found in all aspects of our daily living. I can, however, once again find hope in the potential that we can finally make a real difference for all students, especially students of color. Thank you for taking time with us to learn and think about education. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.